Good afternoon. Hello. <clears throat> I'm, uh, I'm Christopher Preble. I'm the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. Uh, thank you all for being here, and thanks, as always, to our conference staff here at Cato who do such a great job uh, helping us organize these events. Uh, welcome, obviously, to those of you here, but also to those of you watching online uh, at Cato.org. Our topic today is the decision by America and Britain to invade Iraq. Why did these two great democracies decide to initiate a war of choice? How did each country decide? And perhaps, most importantly, what can we learn from it? Today we have uh, three great guests to answer these questions and others. First up is Michael Mazar, senior political scientist at the RAND Corporation. Uh, previously, Mazar was a professor at the National War College. He served as president of the Stimson Center. He was special assistant to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He holds a PhD in public policy from the University of Maryland. Mike's latest book is Leap of Faith, Hubris, Negligence, and America's Greatest Foreign Policy Tragedy, available for sale outside. We were talking in the green room. This book is, is thinner than it looks, which means to say that it reads quicker than it looks. It looks very thick and ominous and daunting, but it's not. It, it's a quick read, so I, I don't, don't, be, don't be frightened away by that. In the book, he details the United States' decision to invade Iraq. He explores how an administration fueled by religious conviction, yet beset by chaotic processes, rivalrous agencies, and competing egos made a single disastrous decision that has continued to have harmful effects on the United States and its role in the world, and indeed the world itself, for over 15 years. Next, we'll hear from Patrick Porter. Patrick is a professor of international security and strategy at the University of Birmingham. He is also a senior associate fellow at the Royal University Services Institute in Blunder, Britain's War in Iraq. This book, by the way, is deceptively thick. In other words, it's, it's thicker than it looks, which is also a good thing, because it looks very thin, but it's excellent. On, you know, for sale, both of them, buy them both. We're here to sell books, aren't we? In Blunder, Patrick examines the motivations behind Britain's decision to join the war in Iraq. These include the notion of the undeterrable, fanatical, rogue state, the sense that the West's path to security is to break and remake states, and the conceit in London that by paying the blood price, Britain could secure influence here in Washington. In addition to his latest book, Porter is the author of Military Orientalism, Eastern War Through Western Eyes, and The Global Village Myth, Distance, War, and the Limits of Power. He also wrote a highly discussed paper for Cato last year, also available outside uh, for free, A World Imagined, Nostalgia, and Liberal Order, and I'm happy to, to announce that this book is being expanded into another book, The False Promise of Liberal Order. So as we are here today in Washington, I thought we'd start the discussion with Michael and his, uh, the analysis on the U.S. decision to invade, and then we'll hear from Patrick, and then I'll introduce our commenter, uh, Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson. So Mike, take it away for us. Yeah, why don't you, why don't you stand up here at the podium? It looks better on the... Uh, it's easier for people who are watching online to see it. Okay. Uh, well, thank you all for coming out today. Um, we're talking about uh, two roads to war, um, and what I really want to discuss with the U.S. case is a road to war that is permanent, perpetual, uh, recurrent in the U.S. experience. And the lesson, the, the main argument that I make in this book is that the road to war in Iraq was not unique. It was not the product of one particular set of people. It reflects characteristics that we see uh, over and over again in U.S. foreign policy, and we may see emerging today. 
Uh, I'm especially uh, grateful today to be here, very thankful for Cato for putting this on. Uh, happy to be here with my friends Chris uh, and Patrick, and very happy to be here uh, with Lawrence Wilkerson, who, um, as many of you know, uh, there's a very small number of people who, at the time, both in government and then as the war was beginning out of government, um, who spoke openly uh, and who had voices that should have been more listened to about what we were about to get into, and he is certainly one of those. So it's an honor to be with him today. So the title of my little talk for a few minutes is uh, Four Easy Steps to Bring Your Nation to War. And this is the pattern, I think, the road to war that we see in Iraq that the book makes a case for and that we have seen before, uh, both with the United States and with other major powers, but particularly with the United States. And it's a story, the echoes of which I think we see today, in Tehran, Pyongyang, Caracas, uh, and that, that demands that we be very attentive to these sort of risks. Now, the book itself tells the story of the whole origins of the war. So beginning with the end of the first Gulf War, through uh, the first couple of months of our invasion of Iraq, has the story of personalities of Rumsfeld and Cheney and Bush and all the rest, a lot of specific anecdotes and stories of, of the road to war, uh, discussion of a lot of the dilemmas built into the U.S. enterprise, primarily the idea that we were going to both set a people free and make clear that they then did exactly what we wanted them to, which was built into a lot of the planning documents. But what I want to focus on is not so much the details of the past story, but the pattern that the Iraq War represents that we have to be aware of going forward. So that basic idea of four easy steps to, to bring a nation to war. Now, the first aspect of this is that if we, if you are the senior leaders of the United States and you're thinking about a potential conflict, you start this process convinced in your own mind that you are not intent on going to war. You begin this process by being sure that war is not what you have in mind. You might write, as Dwight Eisenhower did in 1951 about Vietnam, that I'm convinced that no military victory is possible in that kind of theater. Even if Indochina is cleared of communists, right across the border is China with inexhaustible manpower. When he left the White House, in his, as he was drafting his memoirs in 1961, he wrote the following. If we had intervened at Dien Bien Phu, as the French wanted us to, he said, the jungles of Indochina would have swallowed up division after division of US troops who, being unaccustomed to this kind of warfare, would have sustained heavy casualties until they learned to live in a new environment. Furthermore, the presence of ever more numbers of white men in uniform would have probably aggravated, rather than assuaged, the resentments held by the local populations. Thus, even, even had all of Indochina been physically occupied by US troops, their eventual removal would have resulted only in a reversion to the situation which had existed before. 1961. Now, by 1963, unfortunately, when he was publishing his memoirs, it became clear that that story was beginning to unfold. And out of a desire not to embarrass the Kennedy administration, Eisenhower took, that, took those sentences out of his draft memoir so that the one that was published did not include them. Then, of course, LBJ comes along. And as many of you know, he knew from the beginning that this was not a war that we could win. He said repeatedly, I do not want to have significant numbers of American boys fighting in the jungles of Vietnam. The Soviets, when they were considering the risks in Afghanistan in March of 1979, there were a series of Politburo meetings. When they all got together and said, the one thing we cannot do, we must not do, is invade Afghanistan. 
It would be a disaster. The people would rise up against us. It would destroy detente. It would destroy everything we're working for. Six months later, of course, they go in. The United States and Iraq. So in 1995, a former senior US official, when asked why we didn't go to Baghdad to end the problem in the first Gulf War, said the idea of going to Baghdad or trying to topple the regime wasn't anything I was enthusiastic about. I felt there was a real danger here. You would get bogged down in a long, drawn-out conflict. Maybe it's part of our national character. We like to have these problems nice and neat and ni nicely wrapped up, put a ribbon around it. You deploy a force, you win the war, and the problem goes away. But it doesn't work that way in the Middle East. It never has, and it isn't likely to in my lifetime. We are always going to have to be involved there, and Saddam is just one more irritant. But there's a long list of irritants in that part of the world, and for us to have done what would have been necessary to get rid of him, certainly a very large force for a long time into Iraq to run him to ground, and then you've got to worry about what comes after. And then you then have to accept the responsibility for what happens in Iraq, accept more responsibility for what happens in the region. It would have been an all-U.S. operation. I don't think any of our allies would have been with us, maybe Britain, but nobody else. And you're going to take a lot more American casualties if you're going to go muck around Iraq for weeks on end, trying to capture Baghdad and so forth. And I don't think it would have been worth it. That dissenter was Dick Cheney giving a PBS interview in 1995. So these officials, these senior leaders, begin this process. And I don't think he was lying at that time. And he wasn't just trying to justify his actions. It was what was believed at the time. So you start going into this process with the idea that war is the furthest thing from our mind, and invasion is the furthest thing from our mind, much as we have heard some recent statements, for example, that the United States is not thinking about regime change in Iran. The United States is, would never consider military intervention in Venezuela. Military options in North Korea are the furthest thing from what we're imagining right now. And then we begin to go through four steps. Step number one, create an urgent threat perception tied to a broadly accepted narrative. So you begin to more seriously appreciate the threat that is embodied by this country that you are not thinking about invading. You begin to discuss that threat, in particular tying it to some kind of big idea that speaks to the popular conception of a nation's role in the world. In the same way Patrick talks about how ideas are behind Britain's decision to go to war, an idea or a narrative that justifies the feeling of threat is critically important. In the Iraq case, as the 1990s unfold, right, we begin to talk about Iraq as a rogue nation that is a threat to peace. The US responsibility is to police up these threats to peace anywhere in the world they might arise. And we have the right and the responsibility to do so. And increasingly, Saddam is viewed as, a, as an unacceptable threat. And it's critical to realize that this was not just a Republican perception. By the end of the Clinton administration, they had come to a point where the official NSC position was, we need to do regime change, not through US invasion, through other means. But they had come to the conclusion that it was unacceptable for the United States to leave Saddam in power, and in part because of the broader narratives, the kind of messianic narratives of America's post-Cold War role in the world that everybody subscribed to. And part of the, the, the idea of everybody subscribing to it or the implication of that that we see is that ultimately the Washington Post endorses this war, the New Yorker endorses this war, liberal interventionists endorse this war, the US Congress goes along with it. This is not the war of a few people hoodwinking the American people, it's tied to a big theme. So you have the threat established connected with a big idea. Step number two, you destroy any potential for compromise. 
Over time, you begin to see this threat and depict this threat as an absolute or existential conflict with the United States. There is no bargaining with this enemy. There is no making a deal. They are a threat that must be removed. They cannot be, as Cheney's quote indicated from earlier, managed. They have to be undermined and destroyed. So this accounts for by the time 2002, 2003 rolls around, there's no idea that any inspection regime in Iraq would be sufficient to deal with the threat of weapons of mass destruction. Saddam has to be removed. His continued existence is odious. And it is a moralistic conflict between the two sides. Step number three, as you begin to move down this road, so now it's a very serious threat. You've decided that there is no compromise with this enemy. Although war is still not the leading choice in people's minds, it begins to become something that might be necessary. And so at that point, certain people in the process develop a clever scheme to indicate that this war will be cost-free and risk-free. Now that the threat seems real, military options might be required, you need a magical wand to wave to achieve your goals without causing the big costs that a major war might be assumed to cause. In the Bay of Pigs, we don't have to invade Cuba. We'll get a brigade of Cubans together and let them do the work. In Vietnam, we'll punish the North, build up the South, and be out of there within a year. Our concept for Iraq was ironically the same as the Soviets in Afghanistan, which is we'll go in, toss the government aside, prop up some friendly folks, and we'll be out of there within months. Low cost, low risk, and we'll achieve our goals. One of the most, I think, in retrospect, ironic and ridiculous quotes uh, that um, I, I found put in the book is when Donald Rumsfeld is talking to Jay Garner, the retired general was put in charge of the Office of Reconstruction and Humanitarian Assistance, who was going to initially operate in post-war Iraq, and Garner comes to him and says, for this one particular job, restoring the energy sector, we're probably going to need a billion dollars of U.S. money to help get it back on its feet. And Rumsfeld shakes his head and says, Jay, if you think we're spending a billion dollars of the American taxpayers' money over there, you've got something else coming. That's the attitude you can get to when you have a scheme that convinces you that you can do it cheaply. So you have a threat that demands a response. You have a big idea that's justifying it. You've convinced yourself that you have a way of doing it that is relatively inexpensive. And then the fourth step is you wait for the spark. You wait for the catalyst. The table is set, and all that is required is a final urge or justification, a threat, an attack, a crisis, something that brings you across that last Rubicon and takes the war from a theoretical possibility to an urgent requirement. For Iraq, obviously, it was 9-11. In the aftermath for Vietnam, the whole series of communist attacks through the Gulf of Tonkin into early 1965, the attack on Camp Holloway and so on that convinced the Americans they had to begin the escalatory cycle for the Soviets in Afghanistan. In September 1979, the communist ruler of Afghanistan is assassinated, and the Soviets believe that his successor, Hafizullah Amin, is a CIA stooge, in part because he went to Columbia University at one point, which I guess is, makes anybody suspect. Um, so now you have the spark, and the war is about to happen. And you have traveled from believing that a war would be a terrible idea to the fact, to, to, to pushing the button and beginning this war, sometimes is in as little as six months. And this pattern, this road to war, 
is, I think, very characteristic of the Iraq case. As I'm trying to imply here, it's characteristic of a lot of other US roads to war. And over the next year, I think it is entirely possible that we will begin to see intensifying symptoms of this same road to war in regard to Iran, in regard to North Korea, possibly in regard to other situations. If you have Iranian strikes on American forces in retaliation for US attacks on Iranian forces in Iraq or elsewhere, justified by the new terrorist designation, if you have a North Korean declaration that they are accelerating work on their nuclear uh, arsenal and intend to have 150, 200 weapons within 10 years because of the American threat, any of those things, we've already come many ways down this road through these four steps. And any of those sparks at this point, I think, could be very dangerous. So to me, the most important thing to draw to the Iraq experience is to think about the general pattern that it reflects, the road to war that has become so common for the United States, a road that once it gets underway, it becomes very difficult to slow or stop. And one of the difficult things is in that process, especially in those last couple of steps, it looks like it makes sense because of the big idea it's attached to, because of the threat perception that has now ingrained itself in the popular imagination, because of the sense that by that point, the, the, even in the Congress, but certainly among the American people, there's a sense, as there was in 2002, that they must know something we don't know. There must be a reason why this makes more sense than it might have seemed to a year or two ago. And that's one of the reasons why this is so insidious and so dangerous, is that the United States can ultimately get into these wars, this road to war can become almost a form of autopilot, and the constraints that exist in the body politic, our opinion, the role of the Congress, the role of the uniform military, all of those checks are defanged, in a sense, by the power of the momentum that builds behind these steps for war. So to me, that's the biggest lesson of the American road to war in Iraq. And it's a lesson that we may need to take very seriously in the coming year. So I'll end there. Thank you. Patrick, all you. Well, thank you so much, uh, everybody. Thank you, Chris. Thank you very much to Cato. Thank you to Mike for a wonderful talk and for a wonderful book. And thank you very much to Colonel Lawrence as well uh, for, for being with us. I want to start by congratulating Mike uh, on writing what I think is uh, very nearly the finest book on the Iraq war to emerge in the last year. Uh, I give it an honorable second. Um, <laughs> I think it really is. I think it's great. I think it's, in fact, at the risk of being slightly pretentious, I think it's a Homeric book. Uh, both in its scale and in the way he tells it, where there is this, as well as all the intrigue and the kind of the detail and the characters, there is beneath everything, and we keep coming back to it, the sense of something very large and very disastrous building that is very hard to, to pull back from. And uh, there is, in the sense, the wandering path to a fixed end, which is very much in the shape of tragedy. Um, I think that uh, talking about this subject, debating Iraq, is not easy. Uh, someone once said that all wars are fought twice, uh, first on the battlefield and the second time in memory. And um, for a lot of people, uh, including, I guess, 
some people here, uh, this whole thing is, is still there in the back of the mind. Uh, the distressing memory of it, uh, the horrific physical and psychic wounds, the grave disappointments of it, and for those who still believe that it was worth doing and it could have been done better. And so I'm saying this from a distance. I was lucky enough to work at the British Defence Academy, my first academic job, and lucky enough to work with British and international officers who had come back from the front. Uh, and from what they said about life in Baghdad or Basra or elsewhere, uh, and their confusion about it, uh, it, it really became, I think, the most fundamental political event in, in, in my lifetime uh, from a distance. And what they reported back was really where the thoughts for this book took root in the almost daily news of beheadings, of criminality, of civil war, of, of, of those car bombings, those terrible car bombings, the daily immiseration, the flight of refugees, the sectarian terror, and all in a war that um, had such disappointing fruits that incentivized rather than discouraged the pursuit of a North Korean bomb, for example. North Korea has said it's not going to go the way of Saddam Hussein or Colonel Gaddafi, perverse outcomes. A war that strengthened Iranian grip and power in the Gulf rather than American power, that killed far too many people for such limited gains and in the long run helped to reinforce great power counterbalancing against the United States. And I, anyway, I wrote this book, in fact, while I was on honeymoon, or started to. Uh, we're still together. <laughs> uh, because I was a bit scared. I was scared that uh, Brexit um, would devour everything. Uh, in British political life, the Iraq Chilcot inquiry came out a week after uh, the European referendum. And I was worried that people would want to forget Iraq and it and everything to do with it and push it to the sideline and that they'll just remember it as Blair's war, one person or one clique's war, some criminal enterprise that was just a sad story, best left behind. And so I call this blunder. And why do I call it blunder? Because as opposed to a crime, I think that it's worse than a crime because a crime, you can find them, the evildoers or the criminals, you can lock them up and you can put it away. Whereas I think there is something, as Mike said, that is still with us, and that is a set of bad ideas. Bad ideas that are often held by good people. In fact, I've been criticised for being too nice to Tony Blair. Uh, there is still a degree of that bad cocktail of imprudent ambition and misguided idealism. And this could all very easily happen again. Because it is a war, I argue, that is rooted very powerfully in a set of deeply rooted uh, ideological convictions. So I've just got four simple questions to walk through here. Why war with Iraq? Why they believed it? Uh, what were the alternatives? And some thoughts also for America's allies, because as well as this being an American war, this is an Iraqi war and a war for uh, NATO countries and other countries as well. So why war with Iraq? Well, very much like Mike argues, it, what's striking about this is there is no clearly identifiable moment of decision, of deliberative decision about the most important question of all, whether to strike. There's all sorts of debate and planning and, and conniving about other questions. Uh, how to strike, tactics, under what auspices, under what banner, and what timetable, with what alliances, through what process. But the actual most far-reaching question of all, whether to do it or not, was just reached sort of organically. And this points to a deeper problem here, that there are kind of ideas taken for granted that are not properly scrutinized. This is, I think, 
I would argue, with Mike, that this war is, in fact, not ultimately an act of geopolitical cynicism. It's much, much worse than that. It's people who really believed it, uh, who believed, ultimately, that it was both necessary and possible to reorder the world, the post-9-11 world, through Baghdad. As Tony Blair wrote to George Bush, our ambition is big. That sense of missionary zeal that Mike talked about that was also articulated in slightly less colourful terms in London. I think other explanations for Britain joining in don't work. I think the, there's a number of elegant possibilities. Some argue that Britain got into the war by accident, an inadvertent escalation of trying to kind of slow it down, trying to find a peaceful form of disarmament, trying to kind of get America to go along with the United Nations and accidentally getting into a process they couldn't control. There's an elegant logic to that, but it just simply isn't true. The documentation overwhelmingly demonstrates a very early will to war, along with the proviso that if they could make the stars align, they, they would do it, and to find a way of legitimizing, legitimizing the war, not whether to do it. It's not a lunge for oil contracts for British firms. In fact, if anything, to the contrary, British oil firms and trade bodies are frustrated at the lack of ruthlessness in London about this. There was the French firms and the American firms that were getting in on the action. There is a kind of very British lack of, of uh, being true intrusive on this point. And I'm allowed to say this because I'm part British. So, uh, And this is not the war of a poodle. Right? This is not the war of a great power coercing a smaller power into it out of, out of superpower thuggery. Quite the reverse. This is a very ambitious London believing it can impose itself upon an American process and guide a potentially wayward superpower in the ways of the world. This is a belief that Britain had as a former superpower, imperial knowledge, which, with which it could gift this giant, this superpower that otherwise might go off the rails. That's not the action of Poodle, it's almost the opposite of that. It's Britain believing, overestimating its capacity to steer America in the right direction. George Bush offers Tony Blair a way out. He says, you don't have to do this. This could bring down your government. I'd rather have you on board diplomatically and you could come in in some kind of second wave of peacekeeping. And Tony Blair says to George Bush what he says to journalists as well. It's worse than you even think. I actually believe in doing this. So what I think did drive it is three interlocking concepts which were as powerfully believed as they were rarely examined. Three concepts, the rogue state, the concept of regime change, and the concept of the blood price. Uh, the rogue state, there are, ro there are in indeterrable, reckless regimes that are aggressive, that we can't live with. Regime change, that you, the path to security is to break and remake fragile states, that's something that can be done almost at will and affordably. And the concept of the blood price, that Britain being there when the shooting starts and paying the blood price up front affords the country extraordinary influence in the Oval Office, in the Pentagon, in the State Department. And above all, a strange alchemy of confidence and fear. Confidence that Saddam Hussein was an easy enough target. Fear that they couldn't live with him, that he was also an unacceptable threat. And the belief that 9-11 revealed the deadly pathologies of the greater Middle East, the dangerous region because of its oil wealth, because of what that wealth could purchase, the potential interaction of rogue states and radical ideology and weapons technology, and the need for surgery in the heart of this region. In fact, in Blair's letter to Bush with Saddam Hussein overthrown, there is this laundry list of quite extravagant ambitions, not only 
to reconstruct Iraq, but then to go after regime change in North Korea, to coerce and bring to heel Syria and Iran, and of course then to go after the minor matter of fixing the Israel-Palestinian dispute. There is a document that I shall not rest until I see in, in, in primary form, but it's only said to exist, and I believe it exists, that was, co it was led by Paul Wolfowitz called the Delta of Terrorism that was authored by a group of intellectuals that re reportedly had great influence on particularly President George W. Bush, which argued that the way to correct the world after the 9-11 catastrophe was to create surgery to fix the malignancy of the Middle East by driving onto Baghdad, which was the, which was the best available target. Um, but there was also a harder edge uh, form of world ordering, um, which was that America believed that in the wake of 9-11, it had to demonstrate its strength, demonstrate its resilience to remind the world that it wouldn't take this kind of humiliation. In fact, as Henry Kissinger once said, they have humiliated us and we must humiliate them. And there is a visceral side to this as well about not just revenge, but a very a performance of strength, as, as Anne Butt, who's in the audience today, has argued. Uh, so that both of these things come together. And it's also important to remember that there, is a, a, there are decisions after the decision to go in to remain in Iraq and to fight a certain kind of war while they're there. And one of those decisions is to reconstruct Iraq very severely along austere neoliberal capitalist lines. Uh, the contradiction that Mike talked about in liberal ordering of liberating others on one's own terms to exert control to free up Iraqis so they can do what you want. Um, but in Britain as well, the idea of reordering the world is much more widespread than people like to believe. In fact, if you look at the inner circle, for example, Richard Dearlove, the head of MI6, he says that Iraq is, quote, a prize because it could give new security to oil supplies, engage a powerful and secular state in the fight against Sunni Islamic Islamist terror, open political horizons in the GCC states, remove a threat to Jordan and Israel, undermine the regional logic on WMD. It would affect a climatic change in the psychology of regions of regimes in the region, a pre precondition for progress in the Arab-Israeli dispute, and further horizon to create change. Uh, in other words, it's not just Blair's pathologies here, ladies and gentlemen. In fact, one of the reasons I think people despise Tony Blair is he reminds them they used, that they used to agree with him. Um, <laughs> likewise, similar ambitions can be detected across the Joint Intelligence Committee that produces the dossiers, the Murdoch Press, which is not exactly under the whip of the Labour government, uh, the Parliament and the Conservative opposition. Public opinion, in fact, quietly sort of goes along with this. If you look at the opinion polls over two years, majorities, or at least pluralities, consistently sort of agree with the decision. Not loudly, but there is a broad, a broad agreement that war can work. Likewise, respectable journals that now look back on this error and talk about how it was obvious this was always going to go wrong, like The Economist and The Financial Times, um, lend their support to say this is the obvious and responsible course. In fact, a whole gamut of intellectuals across the spectrum, and above all, and we shouldn't forget, the importance of Iraqi exiles, that the case for regime change had an Iraqi face, some of which was genuine, some of which was, there was crooks involved as well. And I'll leave it to you to decide who was who. In fact, while I was on my way here, as a vicar would say, 35,000 feet above the Atlantic, it just so happened that I was sitting next to a great classicist, an expert on Thucydides, and she said, reading the account of the Sicilian expedition and the Athenians and uh, the Sicilian envoys, you say, this is all doable, this is all possible, we can help you, this can really work. She said, I've seen this tape before. I think the question then is, if Tony Blair could seduce a country into going to war, why were they so easily seduced? 
Why was the ground so fertile? Um, and I think this was not just a forensic issue of intelligence dossiers or weapons inventories. It was about a, a fundamental proposition that had grown over time, which was that war could work. If you look at the recent history, not just in the United States, but also in Britain, the belief that after Gulf War I, after Bosnia, after Kosovo, after East Timor, after Sierra Leone, and in the apparent early success of the invasion of Afghanistan in the graveyard of empires, that British war could not only be morally righteous, but strategically effective and relatively cheap, a, a, a miraculous trinity of things. And that sense of power is a very important part of the background music here. Along, along with the fears about this very specific threat picture of WMD transfer. That is, that Saddam Hussein would transfer weapons to a, a terrorist group. And there was also something else which is not talked about enough, which was fear of the United States. Fear that if Britain didn't step in with its restraining hand, this United States, inflamed and angered and fearful after 9-11, would go off the rails, would jettison itself from the international system, that it needed a little British tutoring on the job. Um, and this played ultimately to a sense of British importance, that Britain could remain important in the world. And there is, of course, I think ultimately an unhealthy obsession with how somehow vital to the picture was fixing the Middle East, particularly the Palestinian question, both as a means to success in Iraq and also as the ultimate payoff of success in Iraq. And in the British debate, and I think also in the American debate, Iran almost falls off the picture. When Iran is mentioned, it's sort of assumed that Iran will go along with this, will acquiesce with this great project on its borders. And indeed that Syria would as well. Seemed like a good idea at the time. There is, in other words, a brutal set of calculations that mixes naivety and machismo, worst case and best case scenarios coming together. And I think also a degree of um, illogic and self-contradictoriness, the notion that a mad regime would transfer weapons rationally to a third party in order to dodge and to duck retaliatory measures, um, and that would also send a message to other supposedly mad regimes that would rationally infer that attacking the West was irrational. I think there's something very muddled about this picture. Now, I do think, and it's incumbent upon us to say this, that there were alternatives that were possible, that the regime ultimately, on first order questions, this was a regime that in fact was deterrable that did take risks below the first order level, but ultimately was not suicidal, homicidal at home, but not suicidal in the face of clear deterrent threats. And what's more, we do know this from the Duelfa Iraq Survey Group report, that Saddam Hussein had in fact repeatedly sought detente with the United States in the 1990s. He viewed it in fact for, to be prestigious, to be an ally of the United States, and regular entreaties were made during the last decade to explore this alternative to offer flexibility on many issues, to offer assistance in the Palestine conflict, maybe even dispensing with WMD programs or ambitions. And I think further that the war on terror opened up space potentially for this kind of reconciliation. After all, the United States in the war on terror was not above reaching new detentes and agreements with dictatorships that had a history of sponsoring terrorism, right? So I think there was actually, at least in principle, some possibility here of some kind of drawn out negotiation Pakistan-style, Gaddafi-style. At least, if nothing else, it could have um, drawn out the process through watchful negotiations and bargaining. Now, it wouldn't have been a decisive resolution, but on the other hand, the pursuit of decisive re resolutions could be said to be the problem to begin with. Lastly, I want to say something about 
allies and alliances, and in particular, this rather unctuous word we hear, certainly on the other side of the Atlantic, of international friendship, or in Australia, mateship, this very sentimentalized idea that somehow between the English-speaking peoples and between the English-speaking democracies, there is this lasting transcendent friendship. I think this is not true. I think this is a dangerous delusion, not because it's America, but because international relations is not conducive to that kind of thing. There is friendship possible in the private world, but if you are after the kind of specialness where in order to influence the United States, you pay the blood price, you're bound to be disappointed as Britain was during the campaign. On the very day that Britain deployed four or five commando into Afghanistan, the United States put tariffs on exports from UK specialty steel. And when the issue of steel tariffs was raised with none other than Vice President Cheney in March 2002, while discussing Iraq and the war on terror, the response, it was said in the, in the diary, was silence. Uh, in fact, the United Kingdom continued to fail to influence US decisions on fundamentals, on debartification, on Fallujah, on Palestine, on industrial protectionism, on military planning. The Blairite concept of the relationship, in fact, was not about conditions, it was about advice in this expectation of a grand payoff. That's not really how great powers tend to work, and it's not something we can afford to proceed on the back of. It's also, again, self-contradictory, the notion that one, in order to obtain influence, acquiesces at the moment of crisis so that you can win an influence that you then dare not use in that crisis. As Michael Quinlan once said, what is our influence for? Um, so I think there is further work to be done in thinking about how do we do smart bandwagoning? How do we ally smartly with the United States, not unwisely? Um, because this was not just an issue for Britain, it was also an issue for Georgia. The expectation of a payoff of a security tightening alliance with a contribution in Iraq that in the hour of need the United States would step up and be by their side during an armed crisis. I don't really need to tell this audience where that happened, where that went in the summer of 20, 2008. And in fact, Australia, I think now, my own birth country of birth, is also falling prey to this sentimentality that there will be a great and powerful friend that will come in from the Anglosphere to rescue them in the hour of need because Australia pays upfront costs. In fact, this whole thing reminded me, to finish with the Greeks as well as we started with the Greeks, of what Fuad Ajami said in his great rebuttal to Samuel Huntingdon. Huntington, who'd, who'd argued that civilizational friendships and affinities uh, were the future, that the future belonged to blood ties and cultural attachments. And this Fouad Ajami rebutted by turning back to that great text on the tragedy of international life, the Melian Dialogue. He wrote, besieged by Athens, the Melians held out. They were sure that their allies were bound, if only for very shame, to come to the aid of their kindred. The Melians never wavered in their confidence in their civilizational allies. Our common blood ensures our fidelity. Well, we know what became of the Melians. Their allies did not turn up. Their island was sacked. Their world laid to waste. And on that cheerful note, I'll stop talking. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mike and Patrick. Uh, as I mentioned, this is a joint book forum, and so I've asked Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson uh, to, uh, to comment on these two books and more broadly on what we've discussed here in terms of the lessons of Iraq, what we've learned, or more accurately, I'm afraid, failed to learn. Uh, let me tell you just a little bit more about him. 
Uh, he's currently a distinguished visioning professor of government and public policy at the College of William and Mary. Uh, before that, he served 31 years in the United States Army, he retired in 1997. He went on to serve as Chief of Staff for Secretary of State Colin Powell from 2002 to 2005. He was also Associate Director of the State Department's Policy Planning Staff. Uh, some of the other highlights of his military career include his time as faculty at the U.S. Naval War College uh, as Special Assistant to General Powell when he was Chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Uh, he was Deputy uh, Director and Deputy Director of the U.S. Marine Corps War College at Quantico, and he also taught national security affairs at George Washington University. So with that, welcome to Cato, Colonel Wilkinson. Thank you, Patrick, and to Cato, and to Michael, uh, and Patrick for being here and allowing me to comment on their books. Um, one of the first things I saw this morning was a editorial by a friend of mine, Andrew Basevich, commenting on, commenting on Michael's book. And one of the, it was in the New York Times book review, as I recall, one of the things Andy, who is not want to reserve his uh, opinions, said about it is, quote, the United States invaded Iraq not in response to a, quote, vigorous missionary impulse, unquote, but to avoid reckoning with this fact colon, decades of wrong-headed policies in the Middle East had clim climaxed on 9-11 in a cataclysmic episode of blowback. And I read that to start with simply to tell you that my view is that it's a hell of a lot more complicated <laughs> than just ideology on the one hand, governing philosophy on the other, momentum towards war or not, and so forth. The other thing I wanted to share with you was a comic episode with the Deputy Secretary of State, Richard Armitage, who is a, a case all unto himself. When I walked into his office one day and he said, Chief, what do you got in your hand there? And I said, I've got Bob Woodward's latest book. And he said, let me have it. <laughs> said, what do you want it for? He said, let me have it. I handed it to him, and he flipped immediately to the index. And he said, you always, when a new book comes out that you might be in, go to the index and find out if you are. And he looked in there, and he said, oh, God, only three times. <laughs> well, I looked in both Patrick and Michael's books, and I found myself in each one time. And here's what Patrick had to say. Quote, the words of Colin Powell's former chief of staff about Bush's style could be applied to London. And then he quoted me, its insular and secret workings were efficient and swift, not unlike the decision-making one would associate more with a dictatorship than a democracy, unquote. I like that. From Leap of Faith, it's a little less direct, Michael's book, but he says in a, this is a quote, a reference to Powell's senior aide, Larry Wilkerson, increasingly cynical about the drive to war and disgusted at what they had done, refused his copy, unquote. The copy was really a plaque that I had had made for each one of the members of the team preparing power for the United Nations on 5 February 2003, especially the White House team, who were just extraordinary in their ability to affect the technical aspects of his presentation. We only had five days and nights to put it together. So I wanted them all to have something testifying to what was truly a superhuman effort. But it didn't want me to have one. 
And so in lieu of that, Powell wrote me a letter on his personal stationery, thanking me for my work and everything. And I tore it up and threw it in the garbage can. So the context was correct. At that point, I was very angry. And that tearing up and that garbage can began a separation of a man I'd worked for, for at that point, about a dozen years. And that separation has, unfortunately and sadly, only deepened. But I, I start that way simply to, I hope, illustrate that when I teach my students national security decision making and focus on fateful decisions, which we define as those decisions that send young men and young women to die for state purposes, and something we often forget, to kill others for state purposes, as for example, in Iraq and Afghanistan, some 300,000 people, even by DOD's estimates. And to spend, as the Congressional Research Service has pointed out in its latest research into the cost, and I think this is very low, Brown University probably has a better figure, 1.7 trillion of your tax dollars to do so. There are far more complicated and complex reasons that I illustrate to my students. I use David Roscoff's framework for analysis. It comes from his book, Running the World. And very simply, it's five categories of influences that encompass what David and I think influences national security decision making in any state, but particularly in a superpower. The first is people, personalities, character, sociology of the decision-making team, chemistry of that team, and so forth. And we can illustrate this really quickly by simply saying, take this president, Jimmy Carter, for example, and put him in the White House and ask if Iran-Contra would have occurred, or if Watergate would have occurred, more to the point. Do the same thing with other presidents, and I think you'll see the importance of who's there and who's advising who's there. So that's the first. The second is the international circumstances, what's happening in the world. We are the only country in the world that has an embassy or a consulate or both in every country in the world, with very few exceptions, like North Korea, where the Australians look, for, look out for our interests <laughs> to a certain extent, um, and Iran, where the Swiss look out for our interests. So we are the only country in the world that has 800 bases in the world, the rest of the world combined including Russia and China, only has 78. We are an empire. So it's very different when you look at international circumstances. Even Britain wouldn't give a damn about some of the things we think are absolutely critical. And we seem to think everything is absolutely critical. Ask those boys in Niger who were killed and didn't even know there was anybody around who was going to shoot bullets at them. The third thing is domestic political context. And that's a big one. That's a huge one. As was pointed out here in Clinton's administration, over protests from his advisory team, the Congress, and he went along with it, passed, he didn't veto, the Regime Change Act for Iraq. Those are domestic political circumstances. They influence national security decision-making, too. Sometimes, in a way, for example, the greatest foreign agent operating in the United States of America today is not Russia, it's Israel. Israel has more influence on American politics than any other single state in the world, violating everything Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, John Adams, and a host of other founders said about having close relations with another state in the world. That's a very important aspect. 
The next one is ideology and governing philosophy, and that certainly has influence in this particular case because I saw the neoconservatives, I'm looking at them today, operating on the same sheet of music, essentially bring their ideology to bear in a way that was poisonous in this administration. And then the last feature of the analytical framework is process, structure, organization. Where are the decisions made? Are they made on a boat in the Potomac with Bibi Rubozo by your side and the next morning you invade Cambodia? Were they made in the statutory National Security Council with all due deliberation? Were they made on a Thursday morning at a luncheon? Tuesday morning at a luncheon? Were they made in the Oval with only Jim and Brent and George there? How were they made? These things all make a difference. So to reduce national security decision-making to a single component, or even a couple of them, is good literature maybe, but it's not what I would teach my students. I teach my students that this is highly complex, extremely difficult to analyze afterwards. Even if you go to the George Washington University National Security Archives, the greatest place on earth to find primary sources and archival evidence, the NSCDMs, the different ways that presidents codify their decisions. I agree completely with these two gentlemen. There was no codification of a decision to go to war with Iraq. There is no national security document that we historians will find later. There isn't one. It was an inexorable process of March. In the summer, in the summer of 2001, Richard Haas, the director of policy planning, shot the bejesus out of his policy planning staff, which he'd only recently assembled, especially his Mideast experts, when he came in and said, I just got off the phone with Condi. We're going to go to war with Iraq. Holy mackerel. Summer of 2001. Fast forward to me in the Oval Office with President Obama and John Kerry sitting across the table from me. Actually, it was in the Roosevelt Room. We went to the Oval afterwards. And President Obama is supposed to spend 15 minutes with us, thanking us for the work on the nuclear agreement with Iran. Now, toast. And he starts off and then goes on for 30, 45 minutes. He starts off with these words, which now top my syllabus. There's a bias in this town toward war. The next 30, 45 minutes were spent telling us that after seven years in the Oval Office, he had no idea what to do about it. There is. So there's that factor, too. When war is as profitable as it is for the largest arms merchants in the world today, we'll have more of it. So all of these things influence national security decision-making. But let me come back to, in this case, I think, the ultimate factor, because my students will always say, well, didn't domestic politics really top everything else in this one? Or didn't the people really top everything else? And then we'll go back to Rothkopf, we'll go back to Powell, because Powell said this to me all the time, Larry, at the end of the day, 95% of national security decision-making is the people making decisions and the people influencing them. That's the National Security Council, statutory or otherwise. Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, Secretary of Energy. Most Americans don't even know the Secretary of Energy is a statutory member of the National Security Council. Indeed, most Americans don't even know what the NSC is, including 90% of the media or more. They constantly get it wrong. Statutory, statutory advisors, everything, constantly get it wrong. How can you analyze 
national security decision-making if you don't even know how it happens. That's how ignorant our media is today with regard to national security affairs. But back to people. People are essential to this decision-making, absolutely essential. And the key people in this are the same people, for example, that did this. Months of debate, heated debate, lawyers involved, Condi Rice's lawyer, national security advisor at the time, Colin Powell's lawyer, Alberto Gonzalez, David Addington, a host of people involved in this argument, all debating whether or not we were going to treat Al-Qaeda and other associated enemies outside of Geneva, the Geneva Conventions, particularly Common Article 3 and the Geneva Convention on Prisoners of War. We thought we were winning at state. Indeed, in late January, we had fired over a missile we thought was just absolutely undefeatable. Dick Cheney walks into the president's office, puts a memo drafted by David Addington on the president's table, and the president signs it. And we find out on the television that we are abandoning Geneva and we're going to do all manner of things that we were powerfully recommending against. Back to Patrick's point, back to the point he quoted me for. This is not the way the system was designed. This is not the way it was designed even in misuse or abuse, which many presidents choose to do since World War II. This is a very different kind of decision-making. Non-transparent, secretive, extremely powerful in its effects, and leading to things like we've heard a lot about here. And if you read either of these books, you will find even more about, because they're both very good. What you find is that the people influencing the decision maker, and particularly the one or two who are so powerful in that regard, and when the decision maker is inexperienced and doesn't really know his way around the town, and has another individual who not only knows his way around the town, but is a bureaucratic entrepreneur par excellence, as Richard Haas described Dick Cheney, then you're in trouble. You're in trouble. You're going to get these kind of inexorable marches towards things that other people are saying, maybe you ought to think twice about that, or even three times, or even four times. Point being that all of these things that are in this analytical framework influence national security decision-making. And it is costly, I think, if you were in the world, not necessarily in literature, but in the world, to negate or to rule out or to not look at them all, particularly if you're trying to figure out how yourself to make good decisions. And I'll finish on this note. Regardless of what you all think about the George H.W. Bush administration, I saw it up close and personal. I saw a national security advisor who performed, I think, in that role in the way the original conception of that role wanted that position to deal. And you say, well, what's the original conception? Hell, it wasn't even in the National Security Act of 1947. Eisenhower sort of started it with a amalgam of Goodpaster and Cutler and others, and then it just sort of grew until Henry Kissinger became president of the United States. Thank you very much. <laughs> But Brent brought that back to where it should be. Jim Baker, 
was as good a diplomatist as I've seen. I would even compare him in a very different set of circumstances to the greatest diplomatist America's ever had, John Quincy Adams. But most of all, arrayed around that president were people who understood that president. And even on top of that, more important, there was a president who had been vice president for eight years, ambassador to China for all practical purposes, head of the Republican National Committee, director of the CIA. In other words, a president like Dwight Eisenhower in terms of experience when he walked into the Oval Office. And so if you're an academic and you're looking at this, you say, ah, I understand. I don't necessarily agree with the policy affected, but I understand the quality of that decision-making and the process set up to do it. Whereas in the case of George W. Bush, I understand it too, but it's disgusting. It just doesn't work. It produces bad stuff. And one of the best examples of that is the fact that when he in November 2006 lets Rumsfeld go and takes over the Iraq war personally, the general in Iraq was shocked when he turned on the civets that morning, the secure video teleconference, and there was the President of the United States talking to him. And he put Dick Cheney in a closet. I would submit to you that the decisions that flowed from that administration in those remaining three years or so weren't half bad. And that the Secretary of State, Condi Rice, who became Secretary of State by not messing with those personalities, in the first administration, because if she had, she would never have gotten to be Secretary of State. See, there's another dynamic of the chemistry and sociology of that decision-making team. Did a fair job. And I would say she was utterly, she was an utter failure as National Security Advisor. So people make all the difference. What does that say to you? We're in trouble. <laughs> We're in big trouble. My students cannot even find a process. We spent 26 seminars, three hours each. They cannot even find a process. They find Marco Rubio making Cuban and Venezuelan policy beneath the inattention of the president and a host of other characters, Elliot Abrams, you can name them all probably, all to get almost dead Castro's deader and to affect the situation in Venezuela. They find John Bolton in charge, even at Mike Pompeo's uh, consternation of Iran policy. The recent settlement of, do we go all the way with oil sanctions? Yes, Pompeo and Brian Hook were objecting to that. All this to say that my students cannot find a process. They cannot find one statutory or non-statutory. So what is happening? What are we doing in the world today? If people ultimately, are the main ingredient in national security decision-making. Where are we headed? That's a huge question for all of us. Thank you. Thank you, Colonel. Thank you all. Um, by my Mickey Mouse watch, we have 30 minutes. Um, let me ask, let me take uh, moderator's privilege here and ask just one question. It's a theme that's already come up um, a couple times. Tragedy or crime? Blunder or crime? Um, I think you both 
Patrick and Mike, you both make a really good case that this is more tragedy than crime because these were these non-decisions, the, the sort of impulse towards war because we live in this town that is biased towards war, um, were driven by sincere beliefs, not by mendacity, not by a narrow material interest, not by uh, anything like that, that it was, it was a tragedy for precisely those reasons. You both make that argument. Um, but the one thing that I keep coming back to, and, and I think it has a lot to do with where I am and where I've been for the last 16 years. My second day on the job was Colin Powell's speech to the United Nations. So I had a different perspective than you did. And Cato, of course, was one of the very, very few places in this town, arguably the only one, making the case against war. I know what it was like to be in that position. McClatchy. McClatchy. <laughs> and I look back now on that period, and I see deception. I see elements of a story that we now know too well that at the time we did not know. I had no way of knowing that Salmon Pack was not a place to plan hijackings. It was a place to defeat hijackings. And yet in this very room, no, well, it wasn't this room. It was the old Hayek Auditorium, which some of you remember our building back then, was in the basement. And in that room, Jim Woolsey debated William Niskanen and mentioned Salman Pak as being this place where Saddam Hussein was planning hijackings. We were told about Mohammed Atta meeting with Iraqi agents in Prague. We were told about yellow cake and aluminum tubes and curveball. These pieces of information were deliberately planted into the public record, and they were false. Does that matter? Should I care as much as you can tell I care? I'm practically breaking this nice podium. So uh, quickly, I think we, we should all care about that. Uh, the distinction I would make, and, and the result of the research that I did, is between senior officials who, on the one hand, get facts like that and know them to be incorrect, right. and, go and, and decide to nonetheless use them to justify war. Ahmed Chalabi, the leading Iraqi exile, is absolutely in that category, or probably in a category that where he just didn't care whether it was true or not. Heroes in error, he said, right? Yeah, yeah. right. And, and asked, you know, afterward, are you, are you sad that the curveball was fake and all the rest? He said, no, we're in Baghdad now. Why would I be sad? So it was all means to an end. Um, the consistent line I got from talking to people in government, for the most part, even people who were not particularly supportive of the war, was uh, we believed it. The broad intelligence picture, we believed it. There was a lot more debate about Saddam's connections to, to terrorism than there was about the WMD piece. But a lot of what you're talking about comes out afterwards. So to me, the big distinction, you know, sort of the hoodwink case is there are, you definitely have cases where they exaggerate it to the point of breaking. So uh, Dick Cheney's August 2002 speech to the Veterans of Foreign Wars is, I think, the leading example of this, where he says Saddam has reconstituted nuclear weapons. And senior intelligence officials seeing that speech know immediately that he has gone way beyond what they would uh, have, have agreed to. And my guess is he, he stretched that purposefully. That's 
hardly the first time that a senior U.S. <laughs> official has stretched, you know, I mean, we said about the Marshall Plan that we needed to make it clearer than truth, the Soviet threat to Europe, right? right. So I don't forgive him, but th that's, but for the most part, they believed Saddam was the threat, and for the most part, they believed the intelligence picture, and that's, to me, the main, uh, main distinction. The, the blame and the, where I, at the end of the book, as you know, I make an argument about criminal negligence. Yeah. So I eventually come down pretty strong and say that there was uh, serious problems that need to have accountability. And elements of that negligence are that senior officials do not give sufficient attention to making sure the information they're getting is right, to getting information from many different places. And if they don't do that, they are not fulfilling their obligation to the American people. And very few senior officials fulfill that obligation adequately. So that's the argument I would make about negligence, not about intentional mendacity. So, uh, alas, I probably have to reveal a certain Machiavellian morality at this point. Uh, I think you should care that people were so eager to consume these lies. These lies were not hard to get planted or, and it was not hard to persuade the audience. Even if you believe that Saddam Hussein had hectares of biological and chemical weapons, it doesn't follow that war that's striking Iraq is the prudent response. Taking for granted that you can't deter this regime that in fact, after all, hasn't used these apparent weapons. If it was mad, why hasn't it just launched? This whole ideological substructure on which the war was based was already there in place. Uh, secondly, um, I, think, I think that it's not easy to say this sort of nicely. I think all war is deception. This country, for better or worse, was lied into World War II by Franklin Roosevelt, deliberately, deliberately exaggerating a submarine incident in the Atlantic in order to portray Nazi Germany as a rattlesnake that was poised to strike. That had great utility and it helped bring the country into the war. And as someone who lives outside America, I'm eternally grateful for it. But there was a lie. Uh, in other words, the tellers of these lies believe themselves to be telling a noble lie because they believe there is an essential truth. Um, I'm not in the position to be judge or jury or certainly not executioner on that one, but it, there is a morality around lying, but I think when it comes to public politics, it's a different morality for the prince than the private morality that we, well, we sort of derive from Christianity or from religions about how one should conduct his daily life. And on a very final point, you talked about this, um, this, distinction, this distinction in terms of art between uh, tragedy and, and crime and blunder. I would again, going back to World War II, distinguish uh, one probable crime that Winston, Prime Minister Winston Churchill committed with the blunder we've talked about. Uh, the blunder I've talked about and Mike has talked about and the Colonel's talked about is one of fundamental misjudgment about not just the kind of war they were in, but the, what they thought war could do, the fundamental error about cause and effect, the belief that war could not only work but would be easy and would have all the desired effects and there would not be much resistance, right? That is the blunder. Winston Churchill has the choice in World War II of whether or not to sink the Vichy fleet with its sailors, on, sailors in their ships and refusing to come out. It's probably, I'm not a lawyer, but it probably was murderous. It probably was a crime. But he decided to sink that fleet to, to prevent it falling into the hands of the worst enemy the species has ever seen. Probably a crime. Also, I think, absolutely right. 
You want to add anything to I, I would just say I don't disagree necessarily with the comments that have been made. And I, as a, a, a sort of historian of the pre-World War II period and a scholar of the post-World War II period, I would say I know we've lied throughout our history. Uh, Abraham Lincoln lost his job in the House of Representatives by demanding that the president show him the spot. It's called the spot speech, the spot where Mexico invaded Texas. <laughs> and we then increased the United States by more territory than the, than the uh, Louisiana Purchase. So I know we've lied. And the World War II analogy, I think, is, is difficult to make work, just as it was so hard for me to listen to Colin Powell agree, even though he didn't agree, and I knew he didn't agree, with the comparison of Saddam Hussein to Adolf Hitler. Bullshit. Saddam Hussein didn't have a hundred Wehrmacht divisions that he was going to march from Kiev to Stalingrad with. I mean, this was a real threat, a significant threat. And a few lives there, yeah, you know. Um, I'm not a fan of some of the things Winston Churchill did, certainly not some of the bombing that he did, but I can put it in a wider array of things and understand it. This is very difficult to do that for. Okay, so uh, we do have time for questions. Thank you all for your patience. Uh, please wait for the microphone for the benefit of those watching online, uh, and for uh, please identify yourself and your affiliation, and I'll remind you that the Jeopardy rule applies here at the Cato Institute, which means phrase your question in the form of a question. Uh, let's see, right here in the front, right here, sir, go ahead. Yep. Bill Klein, I'm a retired uh, military physician. Um, as you were all talking, the name Hans Blix kept floating around my mind as one of the dots to connect. <laughs> and then I must admit, I've been a cynic over the years that uh, Bush II and his crew really didn't believe there were a whole lot of weapons of mass destruction. But I'm wondering what the current history is on that and how Hans <coughs> Blix, who was, if memory serves, shouting from the rooftops that there were no weapons of mass destruction, was largely ignored, where all that fits. Hans Blix. Just, just quickly on that, uh, part of the problem was that Blix and the IEA were not shouting that from the rooftops, that they had a number of reports to the United Nations that they made. And um, Bl as I argue in the, books, in the book, Blix ends up talking in, in sort of circles, almost like Donald Rumsfeld. Um, he, the, the IEA does not unequivocally state, uh, his deputy was actually a little more unequivocal, um, uh, Mohammed al-Baradai, but uh, they, they say basically the Iraqis are not cooperating as we would want them to, but we found nothing. So they leave this kind of joint impression, mm -hmm. and he walks away from, as he says in his memoir, he walks away from one of those things very, you know, there, there seemed to be uh, a lot of uh, disquiet with what he said, and he sa uh, said to a friend, you know, uh, they seem to have wanted... Uh, a firm answer, and the friend says something like, you know, Hans, they wanted you to tell them <laughs> what the basic deal was, and he just, they wouldn't do it. So they left the space open for the administration to continue to say um, the Iraqis are not cooperating as they should. Uh, no. Sorry, please. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, Bruce Guthrie. Um, the... Iraq and, and uh, Afghanistan situation, the president was relatively sane. He had some unhinged people like Cheney working with him. But I'm kind of worried, 
in the current administration, while the unhinged person is at the top. Is, is there any lesson that we've learned from Iraq and Afghanistan that can contain somebody like Trump who could do, I mean, he could just make up stuff um, and know it's fake and not care. Is there anything we can do to prevent somebody like him from taking us to war? No. Uh, <laughs> no, I actually, I disagree. I want to hear what... Sorry, go on. Well, what you're looking at right now, I think, is a situation where the president is indisposed to use the military instrument in Iran, in North Korea, or whatever. And it's the team around him that is operating in his very inattentive aura to do things. Whether or not the president reaches out and reins them in, for example, the way he did with H.R. McMaster or John Kelly or whatever, says get out of here to say John Bolton, or not is a, is a huge question. Um, but I don't think, I, I just don't feel like this president is predisposed to use the military instrument. Sure, of course, yeah. Um, go ahead, Patrick. I, I'm not, I mean, I don't have the advantage that the colonel has of, of his closeness uh, to, these, to these institutions, but um, I think Trump's attitude to the use of military force is, is frustratingly ambivalent. He, on the one hand, he did campaign denouncing wasteful campaigns and body bags, and he does promise, one of his promises is that there won't be any more wasteful campaigns or body bags, but he's also the same man who said that he was the most militarist guy who'd ever run for office, that he really loved war, that he has, he's he salivated at military parades when he was in Paris. He talks about my generals, and he's got a very praetorian attitude to policy making. He loves bombing. He loves kinetic. He's a, he, he's, he has an unhealthy general biographical attachment to violence as a thing and, and being seen to be toughened of demonstrations of power. I think there is what's also going on here is there is a long after effect, a desire to use force without, without terrible casualties. The drones is one important... American casualty. American yeah, casualties, yeah. Right. yeah. Drones is one important uh, link between those things. And I think over time, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say, I think over time a, a willingness to take casualties will return over time. But what's also important about the presidency is that there is a concentration of power in the presidency, particularly on nuclear weapons, partly out of a historic fear that you needed a sane president to counteract a potentially unhinged Congress and a potentially unhinged military. So the, the, the dilemma remains that the wrong people can make decisions with that tool and removing that power from the presidency gives it to somebody else. So there's no real way out of that dilemma. Well, see, my answer to your question was for read, to read the Constitution. We have copies outside. Yeah. And to have every member of Congress who takes an oath to the Constitution to read the document that they're swearing an oath to. It's, it's remarkable to me that when the Congress, for the first time in its history, passes a, a resolution under the War Powers Act, passes a War Powers Resolution, it's reported in the media as a usurpation yes. of, America, of, of, of the president's power. No, it's a recognition that there are three co-equal branches as designed in that document. So my answer, and so, sorry if it sounds a little glib, is to do what the system was designed. It was to provide a wisdom of crowds, right? That having so much power and influence concentrated in the hands of a single person in a single branch of government, that is dangerous. More dangerous, in fact, than trusting it to the people. James, um, let me just say one yeah, thing. Yeah. James Madison and Mike Lee and Bernie Sanders were eloquent in this regard when they, in a bipartisan way, started this legislative process towards the War Powers Resolution and successful legislation on getting the U.S. out of the war in Yemen. 
Mike Lee quoted Madison. Madison was the pen on the Constitution. He wrote the Constitution. He probably knew it better than any of our founders. Go back and read Madison in his letters to Helvidius and some of the other papers that he wrote. The surest way to tyranny is to give the war power to the President of the United States. That's what we've done. And expediting and facilitating that is the fact that no American of consequence has skin in the game. You now have a mercenary armed force. And this president can send it anywhere he wants to for as many tours as he wants to, tolerate 22 suicides a day, tolerate anything else that has to be done in order to affect the war machine because there are no Americans with skin in the game other than the third and fourth percentile in this country, and that's less than 1% of the population of this country. Okay, up there on the aisle and then uh, over there. Hi, um, Augustus Salzona. The, uh, the question is this, uh, the uh, decision on the recognition of uh, uh, Jerusalem, and then recently the Golan Heights, uh, just any good or bad, it, were those in America's best interest? And then uh, kind of a follow-up uh, is this, is if you were president, getting to the here and now, president of the United States, whom of the advisors in the White House with you now, uh, would you replace and who would you replace them with? Let me, let, let's combine these two questions because I want to make sure we get a chance to, uh, that gentleman right there, let's, let's combine those. You guys can think about the answer to that question and how it relates to your books. Uh, go ahead. Hi, thank you. Essenbach, George Mason, thanks Patrick for the shout out and thank you to Cato for having this conversation. It's very uncommon in this town. So two counterfactual questions. One thing I heard in my own investigation for the Iraq war is what happens if Colin Powell resigns in the face of, you know, in this process? Do we still get a war? Second counterfactual question is, I don't know if you guys have read Frank Harvey's book where he says even if Al Gore was elected, he would have taken the U.S. Right. to war. Right. I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Those are, okay, so two good questions. So I think that relates mostly to your point Colonel, about, about people matter, so, so counterfact those are two relevant counterfactuals. And when we talk about the road to uh, Jerusalem leads to Baghdad, that was the thinking uh, among some in terms of the case for war with Iraq. Uh, what do we make of the latest uh, decisions here? Who wants to go first? Sure. Uh, I think a Gore administration would have gone to Iraq. I, I agree with Frank. I, there is no way of proving this, but there is the evidence that we have suggests a sustained history of of hawkish instincts around this and other things. We can debate why. I mean, it's, I think it's partly an anxiety not to be outflanked to the right on national security questions. And if 9-11 does one thing, it is to make the national security dynamic absolutely central to the political argument. Um, there would, the pressure would have been very high. It wouldn't have probably looked exactly the same, but I think there is... The notion of, of people around the time who did support or who, who had or who are close to the... Sorry, start again. The suggestion by quite a lot of people around the, uh, the support for the war, certainly in Britain at the time, uh, compared to what they actually said at the time, is always needs to be looked at as well. There's a lot of retrospective politics here about what people claim. Uh, on the question of uh, uh, Israel and, and uh, the Golan Heights, I think f within its own terms, it probably is a destabilising thing that, that just um, further exacerbates America's security problems in the Gulf. But I think there also should be a fundamental first order question about whether the United States, in fact, should be entangled in the Middle East at all. Do uh, you want to answer the question about uh, Secretary Powell? That's a very good question. It was asked a lot of me after 2005 
Um, Powell's own response was, I leave, someone else will come in. This is rationalization to the max, of course, but and that someone will be complicit, compliant, whatever. As long as I stay, there's at least a voice of reason, I think, he said, uh, to inform the president. Um, I don't think it would have had any impact at all after about a week. The media would have gone into its feeding frenzy. There would have been some commentary, and the cable news ratings would have shot up, but then someone else would have been installed, probably Condi, and we'd have marched right on down the road to war. Now, that's a contravening of my statement about people, but in <laughs> some respects, it's not, because he wasn't the important person. Mm. Okay, uh, right there. And then uh, back, let's get two questions in. Right there, and then back row. Yeah, uh, John Wetmore, pedestrians.org. Uh, Iraq has oil, Iran has oil, Venezuela has oil. Where does oil fit into all this? And if we decarbonize the economy, does that change the equations in the future? <laughs> wow. Uh, and then right there. Hi, Eric Gomez from Cato, and thank you, Colonel Workerson, for mentioning Bush 41 as a graduate of the Bush School at Texas A&M University. Very happy to hear that. Um, one thing I wanted to ask, and this could be for anyone on the panel, it looked like Syria might have gone the way of Iraq in terms of the sort of building the momentum for, armed, for intervening in an armed conflict, um, and then the Obama administration didn't. And I was wondering uh, if any of y'all had considered why not. Like, what was the factor that helped sort of derail that process that looked like it was about to start all over again? Was it because of the people in the room and um, Obama's unwillingness to actually do something uh, that most of his other advisors might have wanted him to do? Um, if y'all could speak to that, it'd be very interesting. Is, is Syria a sign of, of learning, that we've learned something? Okay, two good questions. Who wants to take them? Well, Decarbonize I'll, the economy. So, so two quick answers to those. I mean, I... I personally agree strongly with decarbonizing the economy, but uh, oil, I think, was pretty peripheral to at least the U.S. decision on Iraq. There was discussion of the ways in which a uh, reinvigorated Iraqi oil production could help fund the reconstruction and make it cheap for the United States. But in terms of controlling Iraqi oil as a motivation, I saw no evidence for that whatsoever. None of that affects the, the urgent and very important case for, for, for moving in the direction of, of less carbon dependence. On Syria, I think that there is learning in the sense that, you know, uh, partly uh, President Obama, the Obama administration comes into office, obviously in the shadow of Iraq, and, and believes that uh, it has retaught a number of important lessons about constraints on the use of force. It's always a, uh, uh, the, the mentality is always torn because it's still an administration populated with a lot of liberal interventionists who believe that this is, you know, continue to believe this is the right thing for the United States to do. And I think, you know, we, I think we probably still don't know exactly how close of a run thing it was to do much more there. But uh, to, to Colonel Wilkerson's point about people, you see this in the Afghanistan decision-making, in Woodward's book, um, Obama's Wars, you see it in Syria. Uh, Barack Obama himself was a rigorous questioner of evidence and arguments for the use of military force in a way that probably didn't always come out with the right answer, but in those cases and in those ways, uh, I think reflect at least part of that obligation that a senior leader has to, to question those sort of things in great detail. So I think that's probably his instinct, probably who he is independently of Iraq, 
Uh, but certainly the cost that was paid and the implications of that, you know, uh, absolutely left lessons that influenced the fact that we didn't go more into Syria. Of course, the, the threat posed by Syria and the argument for Syria is at a completely different level of significance to the American national security establishment than Iraq was by the end of the 1990s. So that's another big factor is just the, the underlying urge and the sense of, of urgency just isn't there to the same degree. Right. Um, okay. Let me, let me take a shot. Sure. Um, there, there's a lot of misunderstanding, in my view, of the United States and oil. Our purpose in the world, and I help design this purpose at the United States Pacific Command in the 80s as a colonel, our strategy has never been to get for ExxonMobil the oil or to get for Royal Dutch Shell the oil or any other private the oil. That's silly. Our strategy has been to make sure that the 20 to 30% of the oil available in the world flowing through the Strait of Hormuz principally got to the world at a reasonable price, on a consistent basis, and without real turmoil. That's our strategy. So we weren't fighting to get Royal Dutch Shell or ExxonMobil or Chevron the oil. That strategy was effective for a long period of time. It's even our strategy when we are getting off Middle East oil because Japan is not and others of our allies are not. So we still have to do that. And let me, let me back up here for a second and tell you what we did in 1990 and 91, principally in 90. Yeah, please, yeah. We put a, two battalions of the 82nd Airborne on the ground immediately, not a part of Operation Desert Storm, uh, part of Desert Shield. Why did they go there? And the media missed this completely, really, except for one or two. We put them on the ground because we were afraid Saddam Hussein would turn right and go to Ras Tanura, six million barrel per day production capacity, and own, at least for a time, a time we would find greatly bloody to get it back, the oil. We didn't think the 82nd would stop his tanks, not by any stretch of imagination, but Saddam would know he was rolling over the United States of America if he turned right, and it worked. So it's not about getting oil for commercial purposes. It's about oil for the world, our allies, and others, and ourselves. That was changed dramatically when we destroyed the balance of power in the Gulf. And we, had two cho we destroyed it when we took out Saddam Hussein, the balance of power essentially between Persia and Iraq. We maintained that balance for a long time, even taking both of their sides during the very brutal Iraq-Iran war. When we did that, we had two choices, stay in the area, and this brings me into Syria, stay in the area and become the enforcer ourselves or get out and let chaos reign. That's what we did, and chaos reigned. Russia, Iran, and Syria became the arbiters of that chaos, stabilized the situation in Syria, put Bashar al-Assad back in charge, and now they essentially own Syria. You could say Iran has triumphed majorly externally. It's having real problems internally, not just because of our sanctions, but because of corruption and other things. But Iran is the, the power in the Gulf now because of our strategic errors. And this is going to haunt us. I mark my words. Okay, Patrick. Uh, so I want to just take a shot at the Syria question from a slightly different angle. I, like Mike, I give President Obama uh, 
great credit for trying to have a more uh, deliberative, rational analysis of the first order questions. Where I think it went a little wrong was that the Obama was also determined to project an image of exercising a word he wouldn't stop using throughout his documents and speeches, this thing, leadership. Right, the need to be seen to be the liberal hegemon that is somehow shaping the Arab Spring, which was part of the dynamic of getting embroiled in, Syri in Libya, which in turn emboldens rebels in Syria, who believe that actually that if they, if they do turn to armed revolt, it can bring in American assistance. And I think one of the, one of the things that, that was missing, if you read Charles Glass's account of the decision-making process around Syria, they came back to again and again, one of the things was missing was uh, the need for a powerful account of the case for doing nothing, not just doing something. And I think there was always a movement back towards do the doing something, whether it was making consequential statements like Assad has to go, that's an intervention right there. That has consequences for the dynamics of the Syrian conflict right there, right? Politically on the ground. Secondly, what then happens, because there was an intervention in Syria, a very material and meaningful one, was a billion dollars a year from the CIA with arming and training programs, which tended to lead into the wrong hands, right? So, in other words, worse than doing nothing and allowing a, an atrocious regime to prevail more quickly, it had the unintended consequence of prolonging the war, of strengthening Islamist movements, and then inviting in the other interventions the colonel mentioned. I think there's something very psychologically unsatisfying and difficult about saying we should do nothing, but I think it also can be a respectable, disciplined, strategic decision. And I think I'd, if there was one addition I'd like to make to Washington's sort of repertoire is sometimes there is a case for the lesser evil of standing back. You still get a similar outcome anyway, but maybe faster and maybe less bad with fewer people dead. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, we uh, Please join me in thanking our panelists for this discussion. Um,